For 2.5 million years, the Earth's climate has fluctuated, cycling from ice ages to warmer periods. But in the last century, the planet's temperature has risen unusually fast, about 1.2 to 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists believe it's human activity that's driving the temperatures up, a process known as global warming. Ever since the Industrial Revolution began, factories, power plants, and eventually cars have burned fossil fuels such as oil and coal, releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide and other gases into the atmosphere. These greenhouse gases trap heat near the Earth through a naturally occurring process called the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect begins with the sun and the energy it radiates to the Earth. The Earth and the atmosphere absorb some of this energy, while the rest is radiated back into space. Naturally occurring gases in the atmosphere trap some of this energy and reflect it back, warming the Earth. Scientists now believe that the greenhouse effect is being intensified by the extra greenhouse gases that humans have released. Evidence for global warming includes a recent string of very warm years. Scientists report that 1998 was the warmest year in measured history, with 2005 coming in second. Meanwhile, readings taken from ice cores show that the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane have hit their highest levels in the past 420,000 years. Arctic sea ice is also shrinking. According to NASA studies, the extent of Arctic sea ice has declined about 10% in the last 30 years. As long as industrialized nations consume energy and developing countries increase their fossil fuel consumption, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere will continue to rise. Researchers predict that temperatures will increase about 2 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. What's less certain is what rising temperatures mean for the planet. Some climate models predict subtle changes. Others forecast rising sea levels which could flood coastal areas around the world. Weather patterns could change, making hurricanes more frequent. Severe droughts could become more common in warm areas, and species unable to adapt to the changing conditions would face extinction. Although much remains to be learned about global warming, many organizations advocate cutting greenhouse gas emissions to reduce the impact of global warming. Consumers can help by saving energy around the house, switching to compact fluorescent light bulbs, and driving fewer miles in the car each week. These simple changes may help keep the Earth cooler in the future. Climate change. It's real, it's serious, and it's up to us to solve it. In the last two decades, we've experienced 14 of the hottest 15 years on record. By 2050, drought and chronic water shortages could impact a billion people, while millions more will be at risk from coastal flooding. It can seem overwhelming, but there's reason for hope. If we embrace solar and wind power to their full potential, we can cut the world's yearly carbon emissions by a third. Already, Germany generates 27% of its electricity from renewables, with a goal of 80% by 2050. Denmark has shown it can produce more wind energy than it can use. And England is building the world's biggest offshore wind farm. Communities large and small are taking steps. A new public building in Mexico City 
has an exterior that breaks down air pollutants, erasing the effects of 1,000 cars each day. Paris installed street tiles that harvest energy from foot traffic. Other cities are paving streets with smog-eating concrete and sidewalks with recycled materials. Individuals can make a difference, too, through the choices we make every day. If every American driver drove 10 miles less each week, it could eliminate more than 100 billion pounds of carbon from the air each year. New innovations are making important strides possible, and more are on the way, but we can't wait. Reimagining our world's energy future will take a shared sense of urgency from countries, companies, cities, and all of us. Working together, real change is possible. Learn more at natgeo.com slash climate. We are hurtling toward the day when climate change could be irreversible. I've seen sea levels already altering this nation's coast. China's capital is choking in its worst pollution of the year. Five percent of species will become extinct. Sea levels rising, glaciers melting. Okay, enough. I get it. It's not like I don't care about polar bears and melting ice caps. I'm a conservation scientist, so of course I care. I've dedicated my entire career to this. But over the years, one thing has really become clear to me. We need to change the way we talk about climate change. This doom and gloom messaging just isn't working. We seem to want to tune it out. And this fear, this guilt, we know from psychology, is not conducive to engagement. It's, it's rather the opposite. It makes people passive. Because when I feel fearful or guiltful, I will withdraw from the issue and I'll try to think about something else that makes me feel better. And with a problem this overwhelming, it's pretty easy to just turn away and kick the can down the road. Somebody else can deal with it. So it's no wonder that scientists and policymakers have been struggling with this issue too. So I like to say that uh, climate change is the policy problem from hell. You almost couldn't design a worse problem as a fit with our underlying psychology or the way our institutions make decisions. Many Americans continue to think of climate change as a distant problem. Distant in time, that the impacts won't be felt for a generation or more. And distant in space, that this is about polar bears or maybe some developing countries. Again, it's not like we don't care about these things. It's just such a complicated problem. But the thing is, we've faced enormous, scary climate issues before. Remember the hole in the ozone layer? As insurmountable as that seemed in the 1970s and 80s, we were able to wrap our heads around that and take action. People got this very simple, easy to understand concrete image of this protective layer around the Earth, kind of like a roof protecting us, in this case, from ultraviolet light, which, by the way, has the direct health consequence of potentially giving you skin cancer. Okay, and so that, now you got my attention. Um, and so then they came up with this fabulous term, the ozone hole. Terrible problem, great term. People also got a concrete image of how we even ended up with this problem. For decades, chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, were the main ingredient in a lot of products, like aerosol spray cans. Then, scientists discovered that CFCs were actually destroying the atmospheric ozone. 
people could look at their own hairspray and say, do I want to destroy the planet because of my hairspray? I mean, God, no. And so what's interesting is that sales of hairspray and those kinds of products and, you know, underarm aerosols started dropping quite dramatically. People listened to scientists and took action. Now scientists predict that the hole in the ozone layer will be healed by around 2050. That's actually pretty amazing. And while stopping the use of one product is actually pretty easy, climate change caused by greenhouse gases, oh, that's much, much trickier. Because the sources are more complicated and for the most part, they're totally invisible. Right now, there is CO2 pouring out of tailpipes, there's CO2 pouring out of buildings, there's CO2 pouring out of smokestacks, but you can't see it. The fundamental cause of this problem is largely invisible to most of us. I mean, if CO2 was black, we would have dealt with this issue in a long time ago. So CO2 touches every part of our lives, our cars, the places we work, the food we eat. For now, let's just focus on one thing, our energy use. How do we make that visible? That was the initial goal of UCLA's ENGAGE project, one of the nation's largest behavioral experiments in energy conservation. What we're trying to do uh, is to figure out how to frame information about electricity usage so that people save energy and conserve uh, electricity. The idea is that electricity is relatively invisible to people. The research team outfitted part of a student housing complex with meters that tracked real-time usage of appliances and then sent them weekly reports. So you can see how much energy the stove used versus the dishwasher or the fridge. We realized because of this project that the fridge was like a, the, the monster. <laughs> so lucky for them, their landlord upgraded their fridge to an energy efficient one. They also learned other energy saving tips, like unplugging their dishwasher when not in use and air drying their clothes during the summer months. And researchers in turn discovered where people were willing to cut back. The Engage project wanted to know what types of messaging could motivate people to change their behavior. We wanted to see over time, over a year, and with repeated messages, how do people behave? How does that impact the consumer behavior? And what we found is that it's very different. Some households were sent personalized emails with their energy bill about how they could save money. Others learned how their energy use impacted the environment and children's health. Those who received messages about saving money did nothing. It was totally ineffective because electricity is relatively cheap. But emails sent that linked the amount of pollutants produced to rates of childhood asthma and cancer, well, those led to an 8% drop in energy use and 19% in households with kids. Now, in a separate study, researchers brought social competition into the mix. First, they hung posters around the dorm building to publicly showcase how students were really doing. Red dots for energy wasters, green for those doing a good job, and a shiny gold star for those going above and beyond. This social pressure approach led to a 20% reduction in energy use. This strategy was also used at Paulina's complex, and it definitely brought out her competitive streak. For me, the competition was what motivated me because seeing your apartment number and telling you that you are doing at the average, but you are not the best, was like, 
why I'm doing like everything that you are telling me to do. I always wanted their gold star because it's like, oh my God, I want to be like less consumption of energy in the whole building. And psychology studies have actually proved this. We are social creatures and as individualistic as we can be, turns out we do care about how we compare with others. And yes, we do like to be the best. Some people don't want to say, oh, I'm like the average. No, my usage is different and I want to be able to act on it. And people can act on it because with these meters, they can now see their exact impact. A company called Opower is playing with this idea of social competition. They work with over a hundred utility companies to provide personalized energy reports to millions of customers around the world. Now consumers can not only see their energy use, but how it compares to their neighbors. Like the UCLA study found, this subtle social pressure encourages consumers to save energy. It's been so effective that in 2016, Opower was able to generate the equivalent of two terawatt hours of electricity savings. That's enough to power every home in Miami for more than a year. And they're not alone. Even large companies are tapping into behavioral science to move the dial. Virgin Atlantic Airways gave a select group of pilots feedback on their fuel use. Over the course of a year, they collectively saved over 6,800 tons of fuel by making some simple changes. Adjusting their altitudes, routes and speed reduced their carbon dioxide emissions by over 21,000 tons. These behavioral nudges do seem to be advancing how we as a society deal with some pretty complicated climate change issues. But it turns out we're just getting started. There is no quick fix. We need people changing their companies, changing their business models, changing the products and services they provide. This is about broader scale change. And part of this change includes embracing what makes us human. That it can't just be a guilt trip about dying polar bears or driving around in gas guzzlers. We need to talk about our wins as well. Like how we're making progress, really being aware of our energy use and taking advantage of that competitive spirit we all have in order to really move us from a state of apathy to action. Global warming is by far the biggest issue of our time. Climate Lab is a new series from Vox and the University of California and we'll be exploring some surprising ways we can tackle this problem. If you want to learn more, head to climate.universityofcalifornia.edu. Therapy. Patients with social anxiety disorder and most forms of PTSD also see significant long-term improvement when using exposure and social skills training. Overall, CBT's effectiveness is huge. At home, on your own, there are a lot of coping skills that help reduce anxiety. Mostly lots of things that are good for your self-care. These include building strong relationships, getting lots of sleep, exercise, eating well, doing fun activities, and meditation. If you'd like to try reducing your anxiety at home, click in the upper right corner for a guided cognitive behavioral technique that relaxes your body and, as a result, your mind. Anxiety is no joke. If you think that you, a friend, or a family member is suffering from an anxiety disorder, take a look in the description for more resources in your area. Help is out there and you're not alone, so don't wait. Thanks for watching this episode of Mike Psych. If you like this episode, 
give me a thumbs up, and hit subscribe if you'd like to catch more videos about brain diseases and disorders in the future. Make sure you head over and check out Allie's video about the neuroscience of anxiety. If you love us as much as we love you, consider supporting us on Patreon. We really couldn't do all of this without your support, and we really appreciate it. Tweet me if you want to talk about anxiety or treatment or therapy, and if you'd like to learn about a particular condition, let us know in the comments below. Until next time, I'm Micah. Think about it. Anxiety is a normal part of life. You might feel anxious when you have a big test or a meeting with your boss or when you don't have enough money to pay the bills in your bank account. But when anxiety goes beyond just a temporary fear or worry, when it starts to impact your life, your work, your relationships, or even your health, that's when it becomes a serious concern. If you have anxiety, you feel it. The list of physical issues sounds like the end of a Cialis ad. If you're taking anxiety, symptoms may include chest pain, muscle tension, headaches, stomach aches, nausea, heart palpitations, restlessness, dizziness, problems sleeping, hot flashes, chills, a whole bunch of other things, and death. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that last one. Chronic anxiety can be really bad for your long-term health, too. It's been linked to things like heart attacks and suppressed immune system. And that doesn't even address what's going on in your head. Anxiety disorders often have cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are irrational thoughts or beliefs about ourselves or the world around us. Basically, it's a fancy word for worries. Examples of this might include things like all or nothing thinking. If I don't get done everything on my to-do list today, I'm gonna be a total failure. And catastrophizing. Oh no, I can't believe I made a typo in that email. They must think I'm an idiot. These cognitive distortions can have serious impacts on behavior as well affecting a person's day-to-day -day life, how they interact with friends, or how they manage their job. Without treatment, anxiety symptoms tend to become more severe and frequent over time. But don't fret, help is out there. Contrary to popular belief, an anxiety disorder isn't something you can just snap out of or ignore. It also isn't a sign of personal weakness or someone who's unstable. Anxiety disorders can affect anyone. This stigma against anxiety disorders keeps people from seeking help. Only one-third of people suffering from anxiety get treatment, and people who believe that anxiety is a choice are even less likely to get help when they actually need it. So, how do anxiety disorders come about, and who's at risk? Well, there's a popular way of thinking about anxiety called the threshold model. Imagine for a moment a graph with a normal distribution curve. The y-axis is the number of people in your population, and the x-axis is the predisposition to anxiety. In the general American population, about 20% of people have a current anxiety disorder. That means that people whose anxiety level crosses the threshold in this upper 20% will likely experience an anxiety disorder. This threshold can also change based on how you change the population. For example, anxiety seems somewhat hereditary. So if the population is people who have parents with anxiety disorders, that threshold goes up to 30%. Or if the population is individuals who have experienced a traumatic event, such as mass violence, that threshold goes up to 67%. As you can see, there's a lot of factors that can change the threshold. So, on an individual basis, depending on genetic predisposition, environment, and life experiences, the threshold will change. Okay, so let's say you think you might have anxiety, and you'd like to get some help. Now what? The first step is setting up a meeting with a psychiatrist, psychologist, or counselor. 
You can discuss your thoughts and symptoms with them, and they'll determine your diagnosis. Then they'll help you understand it and work with you on coping with your anxiety. There are a lot of ways to treat anxiety. Typically, the combination of medication and talk therapy is considered the most effective treatment. Allie talked about different medications, but today I'm focusing on the therapy side of things. Honestly, there's a lot of different therapies that could be helpful for treating anxiety, but there is one that stands head and shoulders above the rest with more than 30 years of compelling empirical data. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT. CBT focuses on what and how a person thinks or acts, more than why a person thinks or acts that way. To boil it all down, CBT has two goals. First, there's cognitive restructuring, which involves the therapist and client working together to change thinking patterns. For example, treatment may focus on changing cognitive distortions. If the person is able to recognize irrational thoughts and change them, they will be more able to reduce their anxiety in the future. The second goal is behavioral activation, which involves clients learning to overcome obstacles to participate in enjoyable activities. For example, exposure therapy involves exposing a person to their fear without any actual danger. If a person is scared of snakes, for example, you might have a non-venomous snake in an enclosed tank across the room. The therapist then helps the client through what they're feeling. Eventually, when they become desensitized to the fear and feel more comfortable, the therapist moves the tank a little closer until the client's anxiety returns, and then they repeat the process. But how effective is this? Well, for specific phobias like fear of sharks or string beans, individuals can see an 80% improvement in symptoms with as little as two to nine hours of cognitive behavioral treatment. In panic disorder, patients see about 60 to 93% improvement in symptoms, depending on their length of Hey there, Brainiacs! I'm Ali Astrocyte, and you're watching Neurotransmissions. As most of you probably know, I'm a graduate student. I'm working on getting my PhD in neuroscience. I love my research. Getting to study astrocytes every day is totally awesome. So even though grad school can be stressful sometimes, I love what I do. Not all stress is bad. Stress is actually an important physical response that helps keep us sharp. Short-term stress can help improve our alertness and memory. It also motivates us on a daily basis. But as I've learned, sometimes stress isn't just stress. When stress goes from being a motivator to being totally overwhelming, that's not normal. A couple years ago, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is described by the Anxiety and Depression Association of America as persistent, excessive, and unrealistic worry about everyday things. Basically, I was worried all the time about everything. Getting a diagnosis from a psychologist was the first step to finding a treatment plan that works for me, something I'm still navigating every day. And since I'm a neuroscientist, I got curious about what anxiety meant for my brain. Anxiety disorders include not only generalized anxiety disorder, but also other conditions like social anxiety disorder, PTSD, and panic disorder. The National Institute of Mental Health says that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting nearly one in five adults. So it's pretty important for us to figure out how these disorders work and how to treat them effectively. Just like how the occipital lobe handles vision and the temporal lobe processes sounds, our emotional responses have their own brain regions. The limbic system is a complex set of structures deep inside the brain that includes the hippocampus, amygdala, hypothalamus, and thalamus. This circuit is believed to handle most of our emotional processing. 
And the prefrontal cortex is responsible for integrating this emotional information into our decision making. Scientists think that anxiety disorders pop up when there are changes in the signaling of the limbic system. Of course, we can't go digging around in living people's brains to see how their neurons are firing. But scientists can study this theory using non-invasive imaging techniques, like fMRI and PET scans. This kind of research has found that patients with anxiety disorders have more activity than normal in the limbic system. Importantly, there's a trend for these patients to have hyperactive amygdalas, which is interesting because the amygdala is sometimes considered the fear center of the brain. Each disorder has its own quirks, too. In panic disorder, the amygdala hyperactivity might be caused by less GABA, the main inhibitory neurotransmitter, in some areas of the brain. This could lead to less inhibitory signaling in the emotion circuits, making it harder to control panicky feelings. Patients with generalized anxiety disorder also seem to have larger amygdalas than controls. So maybe their brains have more machinery to process fear information, which then reacts more strongly to negative emotional stimuli. PTSD, on the other hand, might be a result of too much excitatory signaling in the hippocampus and amygdala, leading to intense emotional reactions to triggering stimuli. PTSD might be partially caused by our logical brain regions being forced to process emotional information, giving our brain a harder time controlling those thoughts. In social anxiety disorder, being exposed to images of faces leads to extra activity in the amygdala. So people who are anxious in social situations are processing social information through a layer of fear, making those environments stressful for them. Like in PTSD, this might be a result of excessive excitatory signaling in the limbic system. Researchers are still working out a lot of the details on how differences in the brain lead to these conditions. The limbic system has a lot of parts, and there's a lot of variation in the symptoms and severity of each of these disorders. So it can be hard to pick apart the details. For me, anxiety felt like having my stress dial cranked up to 11 all the time. These go to 11. I had trouble sleeping and felt like I was never on top of my to-do list. It actually took me a really long time to admit that how I felt wasn't just normal grad school stress. And it wasn't until I started getting treatment that I realized just how bad I actually felt. So, how do we treat anxiety disorders? I've personally found a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, usually called CBT for short, and medication to work the best for me. Micah is going to talk about the psychological causes of anxiety and how therapies like CBT are used to treat it in a separate video. Medication can be helpful for some patients too. The most common drugs prescribed for anxiety disorders are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, which are also commonly prescribed for depression. SSRIs function by inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin, a neurotransmitter. In the brain, serotonin is known to be involved in mood, sleep, and appetite regulation. SSRIs block neurons from reabsorbing serotonin after it's released leaving it lingering in the synapse where it can repeatedly stimulate the receiving neuron and push the neighboring neurons to adjust their serotonin signaling. SSRIs are used for long-term anxiety management. It takes them a while to have an effect, and they help keep moods balanced. It's not totally clear how SSRIs help with anxiety disorders. It's not even totally clear how they work, but they do seem to help. Alternatives to SSRIs are serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs. They have very similar effects, 
but instead of just blocking the reuptake of serotonin, SNRIs block absorption of serotonin and norepinephrine, also called noradrenaline. This neurotransmitter is linked to alertness, attention, and action readiness. Which medication a patient uses depends on their preferences, and it can take a couple of tries to find the right choice. When patients are dealing with an acute crisis, like a panic attack, short-term, fast-acting medications like benzodiazepines may be more practical. These drugs have a sedative effect and act as muscle relaxants. Unlike SSRIs and SNRIs, benzodiazepines are considered addictive because of their immediate relaxing effect and can be easily abused. However it's treated, there are a lot of options out there for people dealing with anxiety disorders. Getting treatment has really changed my life for the better, and I am really grateful that scientists and doctors have spent so much time and effort trying to understand these conditions so that people like me can get the help that we need. Thanks for watching this episode of Neurotransmissions. If you liked it, please give it a thumbs up and hit subscribe to catch more videos about brain diseases and disorders in the future. If you're really excited to see more videos like this, consider supporting us on Patreon. We couldn't do all of this without your support. You can find me on Twitter at Allie underscore Astrocyte if you'd like to know more about my own experience with anxiety. And if you'd like to learn about a particular condition, let us know in the comments. Until our next transmission, I'm Allie Astrocyte, over and out. about get off the planet and you know a secondary response um i heard what you said basically about the matrix yeah i i i i agree but then i don't like using that analogy too much because i know so many people want to dive deep into that that idea and i think that the powers that are really in control give us tidbits of information to for i guess maybe a select people to really get what's going on and, uh, yeah, so that's basically uh, what I think about that in a nutshell. But, you know, human beings are very mechanical. If you really think about it, I mean, our our whole DNA and our structure of our being is, is on matter and motion and electricity or power. And, yeah, that's just what I think. Anyhow, thank you for your response. Hey, Jason, thanks for your call in. I I see where you're going with that. We are, you know, we're pretty much programmed as if we were androids. And if we made organic androids in the future, yeah, we'd probably make them pretty similar to the way we're made. In fact, we'd probably improve upon it. And there's no doubt in my mind that there are powers that be out there controlling the government's controlling it you know who even knows at what level they're controlling but and who they are but definitely they're definitely shaping at least generally shaping the way the world flows and we as individuals how much control do we really have you know none of us know and if you look at that analogy as if it's you know the matrix or some simulation i totally see where you're coming from so the question is can we break out? Can we break out of that matrix? Can we as individuals in our voices 
step up and make the changes or inspire the changes that really need to be made. You know, I think that's what we're all out here on Anchor trying to do. So can we do it? I sure hope so. What's up? It's the real Captain Clutch. Uh, in 2018, I just want to deliver a message to stop wishing, stop hoping, and stop wondering, and start to want things, and uh, you'll be surprised with the difference in the outcome of your uh, energy. It's the real Captain Clutch. Uh, check out my page, Instagram on here. Network in 2018, guys. Get busy or get get lost, you know? <laughs> Take care. Thank you for the follow. Thank you for the shout-out. Appreciate it. Awesome podcast. Hey, the real Captain Clutch. Thanks for that call in. And that's exactly what I've been saying. Get busy. Stop, hi- stop, stop hiding your head in the sand and get busy. Speak up. Make things happen. That's what we need to do. Hello, how are you? This is Red Sable of Fuel, your soul. I was just calling to say thank you so much for faving my station. I'm not sure if I called before, but I wanted to make sure that I did say thank you very much for favoring my station. And I love your station. I know I did not get a chance to listen to all of the content, but I did listen to most of it. And I love what you guys are doing. You have great energy. Your topics are very interesting and engaging and different. And so I like that. It's definitely kept me engaged long enough to go through a few of them. So thank you so much for favoriting me. I will continue to keep listening. Please continue to stop by my station and listen to my segments as well. Love and blessings. Keep rising and soaring. Take care. Hey, Red Sable. Thanks so much for that call in. And thanks so much for listening to the station. I'm so happy you're finding it entertaining and engaging enough to, you know, I mean, just to get through a few, they're five minutes each, right? I mean, it it takes forever to listen. So if you can just listen to a few at a time, that's awesome. And there's so many people out there on Anchor. So if we can just cruise around to each other's stations and just listen to a few segments here and there, we've all got so much to say. And it's so important for all of our voices to be heard. So thanks again. Uh, hello, Working Like a Woman. This is D-Souls Productions, LLC, Legacy. Um, I was listening to your segment on uh, health care, and this is why I'm going to be um, pushing hard to talk to people about uh, just basic nutrition. Um, the current doctors here in the United States, do, do they do not practice uh, teaching people about um, basic nutrition first. That's the first thing they're supposed to be teaching us. Um, but you're right. They have these uh, big pharmaceutical companies coming in and they get all these perks just to push their uh, pharmaceuticals out. And it's just uh, it's just real crazy right now. But um just wanted to let you know I was listening to that and I'll be listening more uh, about uh, health care. So keep the good stuff coming. Looking forward to contacting you and connecting with you soon. Take care. Peace. Hey, D-Souls. Thanks for that call in. And I'm glad you enjoyed that health care piece. Doctors should totally be teaching everyone about nutrition. Parents should be teaching their children about nutrition. Children should be learning about nutrition in school. Nutrition should be everywhere. We shouldn't be able to buy Twinkies in the grocery store or, you know, picking on Twinkies brand in particular, but anything like that. It should be fruits and vegetables and healthy proteins. 
the problem is not only all those pharmaceuticals out there making tons of money, it's these massive food companies making so much money off of junk food. It's killing our society. We need to stand up. We need to let our voices be heard. We need to let them know no more. And we need to stop buying it. If we just stop buying it, it would go away. So yeah, I mean, that is the basic foundation building block of healthcare is good nutrition, good nutrition, exercise, good mental, emotional health. And then above and beyond that, you know, we do get sick, we do get diseases, and we need good health care beyond that. But if we just had that base, so many of us would be so much healthier. Thanks for that call in. Okay, so if you listened through those segments on climate change, and then you listened through the segments on the psychology of anxiety, you'll see that the segment on climate change actually references the segment on anxiety. And the one segment doesn't reference the other segment directly. But it is stating that humans don't want to deal with climate change because it's too big of a problem. It makes us nervous. It makes us anxious. We don't know what we can do. So we do what the majority of us do when we're anxious. We ignore it. We put our head in the sand. We pretend like it's not happening. And the last segment that I posted on climate change actually acknowledges that fact. And it goes on to cite specific examples of what we as consumers can do to actually make a change. Now, some of the more obvious ways that we can make a change we all already know about. But I don't think most of us practice. One of them was, well, obviously, just you know, drive less miles in your car. If you have an unnecessary trip, well, don't take it. Do you need milk tonight? No, probably not. Can you stop on the way to work tomorrow and pick up the milk? You know, it's on the way. Yeah, probably. Can you cut down on the number of unnecessary trips? You know, maybe you just want to go out to Starbucks tonight. Do you need to go? No. Do you want to go? Yes. Do you have to go every single night? No, well, maybe just cut back a little bit at a time. But those are the most obvious things, right? Like what about cutting down on energy that we use in our house that we wouldn't even miss, that we don't even need? Like Z was saying earlier, he was saying at dinner, what if we had our refrigerator on a timer and we shut it off between like 2 and 6 a.m. when everyone is sleeping? Would it affect the food? No, because the refrigerator is sealed and it's only a few hours every day. Would it save energy? Yeah, it would save energy. Is our house wired for that? Is it easy for us to do? Well, no. So will we do that? No, probably not. But what if we as consumers demanded or made our voices heard that we want refrigerator manufacturers or we want you know, any other type of appliance manufacturer to start installing these timers where it's easy to program and it's easy to shut things off for a few hours every day. If it was made easy for us as consumers and if it would actually save us money on our electric bill and it has the added benefit, of course, of helping our planet, why are we not doing this? Why are we not 
making our voices heard. Why are the manufacturers not doing this? We really need an overall change in the way that we as a society, we as a world, as a whole, think about energy usage. Right now, I mean, I don't even think about it. I have the lights on. I open the refrigerator as many times as I want. Electricity is not that expensive. It's not a big deal. We don't think about it. I don't really think twice about getting in my car and, you know, going wherever I want to go within limits, of course. But, you know, if I wanted to run to Starbucks tonight, I'd just hop in my car and run there. If I wanted to run to Safeway or wherever and get a gallon of milk, I I wouldn't think twice about it. I'd just get in the car and go. And there's so many other examples like this. And consumption, look at all the plastic we consume and throw out and recycle every week. How much do we think about it? It goes in the recycle bin, it goes up to the curb, it goes away. We don't need to think about it. There really needs to be a change in the overall societal view of waste and consumption. And it needs to be brought back so that it's in our face and we can see it and we can realize what's actually happening. I'd love to have some input from everyone out there listening to this. What are your ideas? What's being done in your community? What can we do?